Joined by the fantastic Mr. Sam K today then, who is Europe's only disabled Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor and um, uh, coach as well. So thanks so much for joining us, Sam. Really, really appreciate it. Um, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, thanks mate. For having me on. <laughs> um, how did it all get started for you then? So, yeah, you were you always quite competitive as like a kid? and Yeah. Yeah, ridiculously so. So I uh, I used to swim back in the day. So from the age of um seven onwards i did regional national uh, swimming competitions um all the way up until i was 18 19 um and then i got a shoulder injury which stopped that and uh and it was then that i managed to sort of stumble upon jiu-jitsu yeah fantastic cool and i'll get we'll get straight to it then why do you think you're europe's only bjj black belt and competitor why do you think there aren't there aren't many more honestly it's um it's still a pretty young sport true as things go um black belts in this country i mean it, there's plenty of them now um but it, it's still a pretty young sport so there's there's a lot of, sort of more disabled people looking to join and start now but not you know the exposure that it's had um is minimal in those circles there's still a lot of people that instantly look at anything combat sport related and go oh, well i can't do that mm. so the fact that the exposure is not there is one thing um if it was in the olympics or or the paralympics as it would be it would be different because then there's funding yeah. pushing towards it and again when you're when you're a disabled athlete, if you pick up one sport and you tend to do quite well, chances are you've got a bit of a natural affinity for competition as it is. Um, I know swimmers that stopped swimming because of shoulder injuries, chest injuries, whatever it was, and went straight into cycling. And just because of their, you know, they, genetically they were quite gifted, so they went into cycling and did well in that. Um, whereas there isn't really a crossover into jiu-jitsu it's, you've got to find your way into it yourself yeah for sure do you think that um do you think that the paralympics should involve something like bjj do you think that would be good for the sport or do you think it would be negative for the sport or kind of in a gray area of it is what it is yeah for me um i look at i look at judo in the sense of all the rule changes that have happened in judo since the 70s yeah often come about after and Olympic Games, yeah. um, and I've been told by other people in the judo world, it's basically when the Japanese get beaten by a certain technique <laughs> regularly, they right. go, oh, yeah, you're not allowed that anymore, and they change it out. Okay, interesting. That, so a little bit of politics there. Again, I can't tell you whether it, whether or not it's the truth, but yeah. that's essentially come from, uh, I won't name him, but it, it's a coach who is heavily involved in the... Uh, GB judo squad. All right, so a pretty reliable so, source then. <laughs> again, I think it's as as a person himself, he's a bit marmite. Um, I, I like him. I get on with him. It's fine. Um, so I, I think you know. I think it's whenever rule changes are brought in, 
uh, it changes the sport massively. Uh, a judoka nowadays is very, very different to a judoka from the sort of 70s, 80s and 90s, yeah. um, especially in the groundwork. Mm. Um, in the groundwork aspect of it, there's not many judo clubs now that have fantastic groundwork. And, and it's not down to anything else other than the rule changes making it more restrictive. Yeah, for sure. So there's, there's less of a reason to focus on the groundwork. Mm. And do you think that would happen with BJJ then? Some more and more rules would be introduced and it would maybe be diluted, perhaps? Essentially, yeah. yeah. Um, I know there's, there's sort of federations or associations attempting to create a unified rule set and yeah. progress it down the um, sort of Olympic route, passing it to the IOC. Whether it'll happen or not, who am I to say? It's a bit of a balancing act, isn't it? Because in one mm. way, it's good because it gets that exposure out to the world and it becomes, and obviously you'll get a high like level of athlete coming up through the ranks because as you said, the funding is going to be there. But That's then also exactly it. it's like, uh, are you losing some of the martial aspect of it when you make it a sport? If you look at things like sport taekwondo now, mm. arguably it's lost kind of the martial practicality of it. And it's just kind yeah, of absolutely. around flicking kicks at each other occasionally until you kind of score a point. Well, that, and that's exactly what it does, is as soon as you bring rule sets into things that changes the aspect of what you're trying to do, it, it does dilute what you're doing as a martial art, in my opinion. So, you know, changing jiu-jitsu and taking out certain throws and, you know, jumping guard, uh, not being able to slam someone, I think it's ridiculous. I think yeah. if somebody jumps guard, they deserve dropping on the red. <laughs> right. I had uh, one of my instructors has a, a, a fairly fa fairly funny story. Um, he was training with Babalu Sabral in Brazil way back and he kept his guide closed and Babalu stood up and walked him over to the window of a third story unit and sort of held him towards the window and said, this is why you don't keep your guide closed because you need to yeah. die. Getting dangle out. <laughs> yeah, he just you know, threatened to dangle him out the window. And to his credit, since then, I don't think... <laughs> He doesn't condone uh, keeping your guard shut as somebody stands up. That would make you change your perspective, to be fair. It would. <laughs> yeah. But but I think, you know, the IBJJF banned slams. And yeah. to be fair, most rule sets ban slamming. However, if you brought it in and allowed them to slam, people wouldn't do it. Nobody's going to keep the guard shut when they stood up. Yeah. When their opponent stood up, should I say, if they were allowed to be slammed on the head. Yeah. Yeah. So, if, you know, it, it, again, it takes away from the applicable nature as a, as a self-defense aspect or just in general as a fight style. Yeah, for sure. The more rules you bring in, it, it becomes difficult. Do you think rules are needed, though, in competition? So, or do you think you should go back to like the, or do you think there should be a, a, a regression maybe back to like the Valley Tudo days where it's like bare knuckle, do what you want, crack on, like challenge match? Yeah. I mean, if we look towards MMA, I distinctly think you should be allowed to headbutt. Yeah. Because it's, it, I mean, it's, it, yeah, I mean, I would. Well, if it's there and it's presented. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I think you should be allowed to headbutt in MMA. 12 to 6 elbows, I don't understand that rule at all. Mm. Um, and to be fair, a lot of the uh, not kicking the grounded opponent. Yeah. In the head or whatever the rule is. I'm a bit out of touch with MMA. I've 
not followed it as closely recently. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously during lockdown and stuff, I've been watching like UFCs back to back, like from one on the UFC yeah. pass and seeing number one where it was pretty much no rules and there was groin strikes and headbutts and everything. Yeah. And then as you get as, as it gets bigger and as people want to like take it or, or as the the um as the UFC went to travel around more and take it to different cities and things like that, there was more political backlash. And I think it was yeah. like John McCain who said it was like um, human cockfighting and things like that. So at that point, more rules got introduced. And then I think it was like 12 or 13. There was no headbutting allowed at that point. And yeah. gloves had to be worn, things like that. And then now you see kind of MMA is, is a different, it's a different beast than it was in the early 90s. It's a sport Absolutely. itself now. Yeah, I mean, it, it develops as time goes on and everybody adapts to the rules. And I can see why they've been put in place. Um, it creates it a sport. It allows it to be, um, I can't even think of the word, but it, it becomes an entity of its own. Yeah. Um, there isn't the political backlash, but from from my point of view, I'm, I'm probably a little bit old school. I think, you know, all right, it's human cockfighting, but those people are choosing to step into the ring and fight exactly. each other. Yeah. Every, you know, every, they're adults. They're allowed to make a decision. Um if, do you want a fighting competition or do you want a point scoring competition? Mm. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, it's it's the rules and the way that they've been developed that have uh, progressed the sport and, and created these, what we're classing as very well-rounded MMA students instead of single art forms stepping in against style. each other. Yeah. So it's, for the past, to be fair, it's a little bit of why my interest in it's dwindled that and having kids stops you sleeping so staying up till five in the morning to watch a UFC just doesn't happen it's a no um, <laughs> oh hell no um but yeah it's created a very fair fight mm. to some extent so yeah. it's it's now a case where the most well-rounded athletes as a rule of thumb or the athletes that are able to push their own will onto their opponent are the ones that are winning yeah. as opposed to it being a style for style matchup like it used to be yeah which you prefer style for style absolutely yeah. <laughs> much much more interesting but yeah I, I, I genuinely believe in the next sort of five years again it's gonna progress again everyone's becoming so well-rounded yeah. that eventually it will get to the point where these style matchups come back into play and the people that specialize yeah absolutely i think there's i think it's starting a little bit now you get your likes of um what's his name that's just fought at weekend pass i'm out of it as well to be fair um is it adesanya maybe kickboxer yeah okay so you know you've got he i mean he's had a massive media push Mm. so there's there's the reason why he's been pushed as much as he has um but he is very much come from a single style background uh gilbert burns as well very very jiu-jitsu based yeah he's making his way up through the ranks yeah. as is um charles oliviera yeah so I, I think it's already happening where the specialists in their own art are coming back to to take over this uh sport again do you think the BJJ will dominate again then? As it did in the early days with like hoist, yeah. so you just smash yeah. it. That's very easy for me to say. I'm very biased <laughs> in the fact that Definitely. Yes, I, I absolutely do. Um, I mean, my little brother's looking at going into MMA eventually. Uh -huh. um, 
and the biggest sort of from, I, I did a little bit back in the day and the biggest mistakes I made was thinking oh I'll have a go at striking with this guy watched too many Jackie Chan movies and tried to fly in knees and then got knocked out <laughs> should have done it but you know <laughs> little lesson though I had to old little rocks had fallen <laughs> on my face I tell you <laughs> Um, we um, so was the self defense aspect of BJJ always something that you were interested in, or was it more of the competing sports side when you first started? Um, the sports side, I used to. So when I used to swim, I was on the British swimming team, and you used to have to sign a contract saying basically you wouldn't do any sport that would risk injury. Right. Um, however, from the age of about eleven, I was a massive sort of early UFC fan, all the way through to. Uh, not all the way through, but I watched the UFC a lot. I watched WEC back in the day. Yeah. Um, so I always followed it from afar, thinking, "Oh, that you know, that'd be great. That I'd love to do that." Yeah. Didn't really have any interest in the striking. It was yeah. the groundwork that I used to do. And me and my old man used to roll around at floor in the living room. <laughs> not didn't have a clue what to do. Basically, he'd pin me down and just elbow me in the ear. Great. <laughs> Absolutely great. But you'd never get away with it nowadays. You'd end up on some form of register for charity. You have to sign something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's what we did. And, you know, I, I was, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And uh, it just happened to be that at the time he had a soft play center for children and in stumbled some bloke with a Brazilian jiu-jitsu t-shirt on who just moved up to the area. Right. Um, and it, the soft play center was matted. Yeah. Um, and we, at the time we had to travel an hour down the road to go to, or the, the guy was travelling an hour down the road to go to train. Um, he'd not long got his blue belt. So we just started rolling on the mats at this soft play centre. Yeah. And that was it. And that was sort of how my journey started and progressed from there. Perfect. Um, your disability was from birth, yeah? Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's just something that you've kind of like learned to, to live with as you've grown up and, and deal with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you constantly get asked, it's like questions like, oh, well, what's it like to do this? Or what's it like doing jiu-jitsu with one arm? Right? If I'm honest, I've never done it with two. Yeah, so you can't so, uh, contrast. No, yeah, no, I can't. It, it's difficult because although I can visually watch people, yeah. um, automatically if I'm watching for, if I'm watching as a fan, I just watch and enjoy. Yeah. If I'm watching with an intent to learn something for myself, I'm constantly processing whatever's happening and whether or not it's even remotely applicable to me. Yeah. Um, but my ability to do that very quickly translates well to coaching. Yeah. So if I sort of elaborate a little bit, what, what I'm getting at is I'll look at, it's quite strange. Although I was born without my right hand in my brain and the way I'm wired, I would naturally be right-handed. Okay. So the only reason I know this is <laughs> I, I once told a, a doctor that when I dream, I've got both my hands. Right. And in my dreams, I'm always right-handed. Yeah. Now, how that works, I, I haven't got a clue. How the brain works. Now. Yeah. But naturally, I go to do things with my right hand, despite the fact that it's never been there. Right. So what I what I managed to do is I learn something right-handed then have to swap it over left-handed and see if it even works for me. So already I understand the position both sides yeah. and then I've got to adapt it to something I can do. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So when it comes to then passing it on coaching, it's dead simple because I've already worked it out both sides and established how I have to adapt to that technique to be able to do it myself. So if anybody comes in, oh, well, I can't move my hips that way. Usually I tell them to move the hips, to be honest. But (laughs) if there's a legitimate reason why they can't do something, it's actually very quick and easy for me to be able to swap it over and do it on the other side. Yeah, for sure. Or make a little adjustment. You're a better coach, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think it does. Um, the, The biggest critic, I suppose, is what my students do when they compete. Yeah, well, it's a good test, isn't it? It's a good litmus test. If you're producing yeah. quality students, it's like, well, that means you're a quality teacher. Normal. Yeah, I say my, my, I'll, I'll go on about my little brother, but he's, he got his purple belt just before the lockdown started and essentially moved in with me throughout the whole of COVID yeah. so that we could carry on training together. Yeah. Just to, you know, tick boxes. Yeah, yeah. And he, he's a phenomenal sort of athletic specimen. He's very, very gifted just because he's exercised all the way through his teenage years. Yeah. Um, but technically, he's very, very good. Right. He doesn't even know what he does to be very good, but he is. He's got the brain. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm more than happy sending him out competing because he is a better example of my jiu-jitsu than I am myself. Mm, yeah. And was jiu-jitsu just something you naturally kind of went to then? Did you enjoy it from the get-go? Or was there kind of a struggle of like, oh, I'm not really sure if this is for me. Maybe I'll go back to swimming. Or was it just like, yeah, jiu-jitsu, this is it? So I had shoulder surgery twice um, in my right side. And essentially it was from a repetitive strain injury. So I was at, I was at a high level with that. I'd got um, a couple of world and British records uh, in my late teens had the shoulder surgeries and going back to it, uh, the last time I saw the surgeon, he just went, if you go back to it, we're going to have to do it again. And the more we do it, the more the movement in your shoulder is going to be restricted. So yeah. essentially, if he has to operate again, my shoulder is going to be locked. Right. And my uh, range of movement will become very, very limited. Um, so I had maybe four months where I just thought, well, I can't, I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, that was everything I've always done. I used to train sort of 30 hours a week when I was swimming. And so it was just mental. It was everything that, that took over my life. And uh, it just, like I said, I'd always been a UFC fan with emphasis on the groundwork. Um, so when I stumbled upon it, it was that was it for me. I thought, right, I can do this. And what I can't do, I can adapt and I can change. It's um, interesting because you said that you liked the groundwork in the early UFCs, but for most people that was the boring part because yeah. it wasn't like the the thing then, was it? It was like the crowd. You could see the crowd getting restless because they were just laying on top of each other. Obviously, yeah. now we know it's like the chess game, and they're working for yeah. position and then working with the, for the submission after. But yeah. to start off with, it was like, nah, people wanted the stand up, they wanted the blood, they wanted like you know yeah. the, the stand and bang. I've always enjoyed the the puzzle of of anything. Um, so when I, when I was grow, when I was sort of a young teenager, I wanted to be a surgeon. Right. And then I got to about 13, 14, and my, my dad went, you know, you need two arms to be a surgeon, right? And I went, ah, oh, bollocks. I better think of something else to do. Um, and and that, was, that was what I wanted to do. I, I enjoyed the puzzle of the human anatomy. Um, yeah. You know, sod's law now, everything can be done 
laparoscopically and I probably <laughs> could have gone into it. Yeah. But at the time, it just it, it wasn't a feasible option. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I just so I just carried on swimming and then found jiu-jitsu. I, I think I just fell into it. And the, the fact that it was, I could see, even in my very naive sort of teenage mind, that the groundwork was a real puzzle. Yeah. I didn't realise how much of a puzzle it actually was, but I knew it was a puzzle and it was that that fascinated me that some people could just move a body part and turn somebody over and then be on top and be able to rip their heads off. It just, I can't quite sort of explain how much that fascinated me. I used to watch the same fights over and over again. Just analysing them. and I was just in awe, if I'm honest. You know, I've, I've probably watched the first four UFCs more times than I'd care to admit. <laughs> um, but, it, yeah, it was just the fact that you could be on the floor, be underneath, and still be winning. Yeah. Yeah, and it just fascinated me. So as soon as I started training, that was pretty much it for me. I was, that was it. I was involved, and that was what I was going to do. Yeah. And how did you find adapting it to start off with then? So as like a complete newbie, because people that are fully, you know, don't have a disability, they struggle with BJJ and, you know, mm. the first, you know, six months, a year, et cetera, that's difficult enough where you're just being pinned and it's just learning to survive. But then add a disability and it's like, wow, okay, like fair play. I think it, it increased my fascination with it because I liked the puzzle. Yeah. So being stuck underneath and going... Right, I'm, I'm stuck here. And you ask somebody else, you know, I'd ask uh, Alex and Ricardo that were the blue belts that trained with me at the time. Like, How'd you get out of this? And they they show me something that I'd need two arms for. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's not going to work. So I need to come up with something else. So yeah. I would always follow a foundation of of knowledge. I what they've shown me as an escape or a sweep or whatever but I would then have to change it for myself. But it increased that problem-solving aspect. Um, and although I've always been very physically competitive, mm. it's always been the technique and the, the problem-solving that fascinates me. Yeah. So I, yes, it was more difficult, I imagine. I've never done it with two arms. Um, but it was that that engrossed me into it. Yeah, for sure. What about competing then? So when did you first start competing? Was it fairly early on or was it, you know, later? Um, <clears throat> I did a competition. I was, I was down in Dartford for work at the time. And I was, I think I'd been training three months. So, and I rang up the organiser and went, hey, can I jump on this? I'm down here. I'm, you know, I've got nothing else to do for a weekend. Can I jump on this competition? <laughs> yeah. And they took me in and uh, I was... I got triangle by the first guy I fought. Um, and I don't even know what happened in the second fight. Lost. Yeah, he lost, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I lost both of them. Um, mm-hmm. I'd been training twice a week for three months. Yeah. <laughs> um, slightly intermittently, like I said, because I'd go away for work as well. Yeah. So it was just, I'm enjoying this. Let me go and try and compete. Yeah. So I did. And yeah, I mean, I got my ass handed to me, but it made me sort of go back home afterwards and go, right, I got caught with a triangle. Let me go and work on that. Yeah. Um, and then that carried, I didn't compete again until after I got my blue belt. 
And then, if I'm honest, my competitions are very hit and miss. If I if I've lost, it's either been with a collar strangle, usually. Yep. Um, or via points. Okay. Um, but I would. I'm pretty fifty-fifty, to be fair. Yeah. Do you um, no gi and gi? Yeah. Is yeah, the one I, is the one you prefer? I prefer the gi. Okay. Again, yeah. for the problem solving, the, the the grips fascinate me. Yeah. Um, so I prefer training in the gi. I tend to compete better in no gi. Right. Okay. That's that's interesting then. So the one that you're more interested in, yeah, mm. less success in. Yeah. I mean, it comes out. It does come out of the grips. Everybody's got twice as much as I do. Yeah. Um. So w- when it actually hits that point. It's uh, I'm at more of a disadvantage wearing the gi, but when it comes to training, I like that. Yeah, I like that. I like to solve the problems more often. I like using the grips. Um, I, I think that is the dominant part of jiu-jitsu. If you lose the grip fight, you're always going to lose. Yeah, but chances are I'm going to lose the grip fight. Yeah, so I have to then work my way around that again. Um, so yeah, I prefer the gi, but when it comes to doing no gi, the, the grips themselves in the sense of grabbing and holding onto something is less, there's less of a gap there mm. between me and an able-bodied person. So I tend to manage to compete better in no gi. Yeah, perfect. What about the black belt then? So how was it receiving a black belt and what was that like? Because... I've said this before, but BJJ is one of the arts that's kind of kept its, um, it's kept its respect for the black belt. So mm. you don't get a black belt that's just churned out McDojo style where you can just pay your money every month and then eventually you'll get a black belt. It's, it's really earned um, and, you know, not many people get it. So, so what was that experience like? It was, it was strange, if I'm honest, because I'd never paid any attention to my belt rank all the way through. Yeah. I'd, I'd get awarded my belt. I'd go, ah, oh, that looks cracking. And, and that'd be it. So I'd never really paid any attention to it. Um, when it, when it came to getting my black belt, I, I was surprised, but I also wasn't surprised. Right. I put in the time, um, I put in loads of time. I've competed at Brown belt and, you know, held my own. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to say I, I dominated, but, I managed to fight good high-level people, hold my own, sometimes win, sometimes lose, but I would never be outclassed. Mm -hmm. I'd never feel like I wasn't worthy of the belt rank that I had. Yeah. Um, Again, I've I've gone into some fights and just completely had my ass kicked, but then there's others where I've done the same on the reverse. So I have always felt like I've deserved the rank that I've got. Um, it, I mean, it was, I didn't know I was the first disabled black belt in Europe. It was mm. only after speaking to uh, a guy called, do you know what? I can't even remember his name. Some guy. Something, something silver from Brazil. Yeah. He's, a, he's a black belt in Brazil that's uh, an above knee amputee. Okay. He's kind of heading the uh, Federation of Para Jiu Jitsu. Yeah. I think it's whatever it's got an acronym i can't remember it <laughs> yeah i'm not good at that sort of stuff um 
but he's heading that. So I spoke to him. He's got essentially a list of all the disabled competitors and their rank. And he went, oh, yeah, you're first in Europe. Cool. I went, oh, Sam, that'll do. <laughs> yeah, tick. Yeah, tick that. You know, that, that'll go down. Yeah. It'll, uh, something historical to look back on. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was overwhelming, to be honest, because mm. it, it was the first time I'd actually thought about my rank. Yeah, yeah. First time I'd ever thought, yeah, I, you know, it's I've actually made, I, I've actually made it to a high level in this. I didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah, it was um, never the goal when you when you started. No, I, I mean, I always had a, I always had a goal that I'd hope I'd get to black belt before I was thirty. Okay. Um, can't remember how old I was. Twenty-seven. Yep. What are you now? Twenty-nine. Thirty. Twenty-nine now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think. Yeah, 27, I think I was. So, you know, that was, but that was a goal that I'd sort of said early on and then never really put much thought into it because I knew that thinking about it wasn't going to help me get better. Yeah, just go and train. Yeah, yeah, just go and train, train with plenty of different people. Um, and I think that that's a huge difference maker as well. So I, I run, well, I did run before this bloody virus hit. I do camps every month where people from all over the country um, essentially get together and train. We'll train for a weekend. We'll do loads of techniques, loads of sparring. And I get to roll with people from all over the country with absolutely no pressure on it. It's just fun. Yeah. Um, I think you had Lee Remedios on I did, a couple yeah. of weeks back. Yeah. Um, he's been up to our camps. So I've, I've rolled with Lee. Yeah. He's, he's good fun, actually. I get on with him. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, we've rolled with Lee and then there's been loads of people and every time I, I do a camp, I'll endeavour to roll with as many people as I can. Yeah, this is an interesting thing in the martial arts sometimes because you see it, no matter what martial art you do, sometimes when you see seminars or you see, even if it's like um, like friendship seminars where there's different styles, but people tend to just train with the same people because it's a comfortable thing to do. So they'll train with the people from their academy or they'll mm. train with like friends that they know, that they know they've worked with before sometimes. I think it's just such a waste because you're yeah. missing out on such an opportunity to train with like different sizes, different people, different strengths, different abilities. And yeah, it's just crazy to me that that, that still happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I, make a, I make a conscious effort to almost force my students to partner themselves up with other people yeah. from other gyms that they've not trained with before uh, when I do these camps. So I'll often, I, I, do, do you know what I think it is? I think it's always an anxiety thing. People, yeah. the, the, you know, there's, there's 50 people in a room of, of which you probably know five or six. Yeah. So there's an anxiety thing of even in your group of five or six people, you're still only a small percentage of that. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. that, that number of people. Um, often enough, I'll just walk up to people and go, you know, visitors and so, oh, Dave, go party yourself with Matt over there. Yeah. And, and I'll sort of almost force it upon people. Yeah. Uh, but I do that in my normal classes as well, is I will partner people up so that they're not always in the little, little comfort zones with the friends. Yeah. And and uh, it's when I started doing it, it was about two months after quite a few people came up to me and go, you know, I really like when you do that because it takes that 
schoolyard anxiety of being the last yeah. one stood there going, oh, nobody wants to be my friend. <laughs> Getting picked like, last football practice. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And and that was, it was actually, um, that was actually why I started doing it because I kind of saw a couple of people hovering back and not stepping forward to choose a partner. Yeah. And essentially it, it's not because they don't want to be trained with, it's just their own self-confidence means yeah, they yeah. shy back and other people just kind of nod at each other and go, oh, all right, we'll go. Um, so when I saw that happening more often, I went, right, well, I'll step in and I'll partner people up. And sometimes I do it where size, ma- you know, the size matches with each other. Other times I go the complete opposite and put, yeah. you know, my wife who's five foot three, five foot four, I'll put over somebody that's six foot tall. Yeah, yeah. Go, yeah, go. Off you go and met that work on somebody twice your size. Yeah, yeah. It's important. So, but, you know, it, seem, it seems to work. It, it's, it's gone down quite well with my club. Yeah. Um, I'll carry on doing it. <laughs> yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when did you start coaching then? What was that like? I started at, um, at Blue Belt. So the two Blue Belts that set us up, um, they eventually moved, one of them moved back to Brazil mm-hmm. and one moved down to Brighton. And at that point, I was just kind of sat there going, mm, well, I don't really want to stop training we're going to keep on training as we are and I was still a white belt at this point so there was six or seven of us and we went look we'll just get together and we'll train what we know yeah stick with the fundamentals that we've been taught and we'll just go over it again um and my retention uh my memory retention for the techniques was better than most of the other people probably because of the amount I had to work it out for myself yeah, and think. And, um, yeah. So I'd, I'd, I'd had to play it through my head a lot more. So I retained a lot more of these techniques. So I kind of almost took on the lead role with these guys, despite the fact that we were all the same level. Yeah. Um, I just retained the techniques better. So to then pass it back again, and we'd just pass it back and forth. And I'd be corrected by uh, Adam, who's my main training partner now, even well before this virus. Anyway. Um, and we'd pass it back and forth, and he'd potentially go, oh, I don't think this were right, I think we did this instead. Yeah. I go, all right, okay, we'll do that. Um, and then when I got my blue belt, I said to um, Paul Hartley, who was my sort of head instructor at the time in Preston, so look, can I open the doors a little bit? I said, I'm not going to, I said, I don't plan on advertising massively. Yeah. I just want to open the doors and sort of see if we get any more white belts come in and people wanting to start. You know, yeah, that's fine. But, this was back in 2012, 13, maybe. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of gyms around. Yeah, it's still quite early. So for it. Blue Belts coaching wasn't, wasn't really a big thing back then. Yeah. Because, again, there was, wasn't many around. You just did what you did. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it was from then. So about 2012, 2013 was when I started coaching. And then I've just carried on from then. Yeah. And have you got a have you got a premises now or? Yeah, I, so we had this. We carried on training in the soft place, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, up until six years ago, and then we opened a gym. Um, and the upstairs of the gym is is, is my club. Um, and it, I mean it's it's a good space. It's 120 square meters of mat. Mm-hmm. Good changing rooms, male and female. Loads of whip, loads of space to chuck your bags and stuff, which is you know plus side of why we can run the camps is because of the venue that we've got. 
yeah amazing how's it been this year then obviously the past year how have you stayed motivated to train <sighs> obviously it's good having your brother there but you know yeah no it's i've had my brother to train with um in between the sort of lockdowns where they've been really strict we've mm. i'd managed to sort of read the legislation and twist the rules a little bit and just you yeah, know yeah. say to some of the guys you know most have to be fair yeah 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 had to to survive <clears throat> haven't it yeah and all, to be fair, all I did was say to the guys that were coming in, look, you're bubbled up with yeah. this person, that's your training partner, yeah. off you go. Yeah. Whether they stuck to that, I ain't got a clue, I didn't pay any attention. But that's what I told them initially. Yeah. If they want to stick to, you know, they're all adults at the end of the day, they're going to stick to the rules, they'll stick to the rules. If they're not, they're not. Um, you know, so we carried on. Little sort of intermittent things, but yeah, me and, me and Will just kept training. Um, I'd roll with my wife a little bit. I, I, I started lifting more weights again. I'd stopped doing that for years. Yeah. Um, so I went back to lifting weights again, uh, put on a bit of weight and yeah, just sort of kept ticking over really. Yeah. And how do you see it going in the future then for, for yourself and your academy and also kind of BJJ and then I suppose disabled Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu too? Uh, starting up, I mean, I will always compete just because I enjoy it more than anything. Yeah. I enjoy, I enjoy the tournaments. I enjoy the sub only shows, um, but my main goal at the minute is is as a coach. So I want my students to be able to go out and compete more. So I'll I'll go and support them. Yeah. Um, so I think you know that's that's my main push at the minute is to, is to work on my students and yeah, helping them develop. Um, and like I said, uh, as an academy, as a business, running the camps is fantastic i love doing that because you get you to train with 50 other people in a weekend yeah yeah sure god knows how many of them you've not seen before um so you know why would i not do that yeah everybody enjoys them they sell out every time we get good levels of people there there's always whenever we do a camp there's always at least 10 black belts on the mat as well so there's loads of uh experience and knowledge uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that will constantly push them. Uh, as for dis- disabled jiu-jitsu, I've just um, made contact with a couple of charities that work with amputees. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the names of them now. But I- I've-, I've said to my wife, well, you know, I'll spend some time towards the end of this year going to a couple of locations, some in the north, some in the south, and just offering intro sessions to amputees. Yeah, cool. Via this charity, so hopefully that'll pan out. Yeah, a lot of it depends on sort of their what they're able to push out there because that that's the that's the only thing that holds um, jujitsu back when it comes to having disabled competitors is one, most of them are amputees. So most of the the people that these charities deal with are amputees that have had an amputation via something traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that be an infection or you know diabetes or bike crash, car crash, things like that. I don't know. You know, each person is 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 different in themselves. So, but because it's usually when it's something traumatic, it affects the self-esteem. Yeah. And whether or not they will then go, oh yeah, I'll go and walk into a room full of people that are all scrapping. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if I can put these together, get to a point and go, Right, there you go. This is just for you lot. I brought a couple of the other um, disabled sort of jiu-jitsu practitioners. Yeah. 
along with me. We'll teach you some stuff. We'll get you started. And then we will point you in the direction of a gym in your yeah. local area. I'll see how it pans out again. <laughs> the minute I daren't say I'd commit to anything. No. Um, yeah. But that's just with the way the world is at the minute. So, but yeah, that, that is a plan for the, for the near future. And hopefully doing that means that five years down the line, there'll be a decent number of yeah. disabled athletes doing jiu-jitsu and then being able to showcase it. I think it's a great idea because as you said, you know, building that self-esteem, I don't think there's a, there's, or, you know, there's lots of ways to do it, but I think martial arts are a great way to build people's self-esteem. Yeah, I think, and, I, I, I don't think there's a better way to be honest. Yeah. And the I fact think, that from day one, you're kind of with people and you're, you're being tactile with them through gripping yeah. and rolling and things like that. It's a great way to form relationships really fast. Yeah. And, you know, that's what we all need, I think, now after a year of being locked away on our own. Yeah, year of being locked in a room. Yeah. I, I've had, I've not had a ridiculous amount of contact with people. Yeah. Even sort of Zoom, phone calls, stuff like that. I'm, I'm pretty introverted myself anyway. So outside of the jiu-jitsu stuff that I do, I don't really do anything else. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm fairly boring. <laughs> so, so when I'm teaching and I'm involved in doing my job that's my social life that's what i enjoy doing um and it's it's made a huge difference to me personally so i i don't see why it couldn't do the same for other people yeah for certain awesome where can people get in in touch with you then so if they want to find out more about you or to find out more about your school if they're in the area uh there's the lakes bjj is the instagram tag handle thing whatever it is that's the gym yeah Uh, i'm my Instagram's Phantom of the Mats. Great uh, name, by the way. You win the best name for Instagram handle on that one. Best name for Instagram. I'll take that. Phantom of the Mats. I'll take that. I'll take that. It took me a while <laughs> to think that one up. Um, yeah. Uh, Facebook's just uh, the Lake District BJJ Academy. Yeah. I think that's it, really. Like I said, I'm, I'm pretty boring. Just like them. <laughs> awesome cool thank you so much sam i really appreciate no, thank you chatting to us and yeah always inspiring and good luck with the competitions and stuff and and the the seminars that you're gonna be running when the world gets back to normal hopefully in the not in the not too distant yeah hopefully we've got some new uh, plans for a couple of decent guests up this year so we'll see how they go and uh most of the camps we do are with ben poppleton and if, yeah. if you haven't if you haven't heard of him try and get him on your podcast because he's good fun okay cool yeah awesome. loads of stories loads of stories. He'll, he'll tell you the whole history of this art yeah fantastic yeah Yeah, i'll get him on yeah brilliant all right then cheers sam cheers mate pleasure